Welcome to Smart Politics. I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. So if you're doing a podcast about vice, which I am, then there's only one place to start, alcohol. It is the undisputed king of vices and for good reason. Just about everything about our complicated relationship with it informs how we think about every other vice. What a relationship it's been. We've gone through just about every stage possible. An intense honeymoon period, a very messy breakup, followed by a joyful reconciliation. Here we are now in a long-term, but maybe not entirely healthy marriage. So in this episode, we're going to explore our relationship with booze and see if there's anything we can learn. Let's begin. Ordinarily, talking about the history of hooch means starting around prohibition. But if you've heard this show before, then you should know by now that I'm not going to do that. And here's why. Have you ever stopped to think about the circumstances that led to prohibition? I mean, think about it. It didn't come out of nowhere, right? It's not like a bunch of people woke up one day and decided that for no particular reason, they were going to ban alcohol. The temperance movement, which ultimately culminated in the 18th Amendment, was in response to something. That something was that in the early 19th century, Americans were drinking a lot. According to an exhibit that was at the National Archives, the average American today consumes around 2.3 gallons of alcohol per year, which uh, looking at the gallon of milk currently sitting in my fridge seems like an unhealthy amount, but probably not a destructive amount. But in 1830, that number was seven gallons. Let me repeat, in 1830, the average American consumed seven gallons of alcohol per year. They drank at breakfast, with the morning snack, at lunch, at dinner, and ended the day with a nightcap as if they needed one at that point. And all of that drinking doesn't even include the cider, the drink of choice for American families for nearly 200 years was hard cider. The estimates are less precise here, but families went through it by the barrel, and those barrels were very big. We were, quite possibly, a country overflowing with alcoholics. So it's really no surprise that the temperance movement started when it did. The country had a problem, one that needed solving, and temperance was the attempt to answer it. And for a while, it did. When we talk about the movement now, we tend to start at the end with the failure of prohibition. What we don't talk about is how successful it was in the beginning. Remember, by 1830, Americans were consuming seven gallons of alcohol a year, and not the light stuff either. All the corn in the United States led to corn whiskey. So people weren't drinking to have fun, they were drinking to get drunk. But in the three decades after 1830, alcohol consumption was cut in half all the way down to three and a half gallons a year by 1860. 
which puts them pretty close to where we are now. And a lot of people were happy with the results. So happy, in fact, that people from all over the nation joined the cause. The movement, which had been a kind of scrappy underdog movement, turned into a powerful force. But even that change wasn't enough to turn public sentiment against it or the ideas at its core. However, it did signal the start of a new era in the movement, one that would eventually lead to its downfall. So in a pattern that we still see today, a little bit of a good thing wasn't enough. There's a certain irony in the fact that a movement founded on the idea that people should exercise self-control ultimately failed because it couldn't. But that's what happened. Their early successes led to greater ambition and attracted people who wanted to piggyback, people who were less concerned about blunting the very real problems of excessive alcohol consumption and more concerned about using a popular movement to bolster their own image. So temperance was out and outright prohibition was in. And as we know, that didn't work out too well. Americans then, as now, didn't like the government telling them what they couldn't do. And they really didn't like the unequal law enforcement regime that came with the 18th Amendment. But mostly, they didn't like the black market that immediately sprang up. The violence, the payoffs, the corruption of both public officials and law enforcement. The whole thing was a bit much for the public to tolerate. So public opinion began to shift. Which brings me to one of the first lessons that I think is worth learning from this era. On the surface, the temperance movement was a good idea. While it's negatively associated with absolute abstinence now, that's not its original meaning. For most of human history, temperance, as explained by philosophers like Aristotle, Marcus Aurelius, and Thomas Aquinas, had virtue. It was considered a sign of refinement that a person could control their impulses and their desires. Temperance wasn't about always saying no. It was about knowing when to say yes and when not to. Moderation. The problem is what I mentioned earlier. Many good ideas start to seem pretty bad when they get wrapped up in our political processes. It's one thing to believe that your neighbor or your wife, out of legitimate concern for your well-being, is trying to help you. Their concern, even if you don't always agree with them, seems like it's coming from a healthy place. It's quite another when the government, led by elected officials and enforcing their rules via the law, starts to tell you what they will and will not allow you to do. It chafes. It rubs us the wrong way. It flies in the face of self-rule. It goes against the fierce independent streak that defines America. And so the temperance movement found out nearly a century ago what many social movements today still haven't learned. The halls of power are seductive, but their allure is a trap. Ultimately, temperance didn't work. The 21st Amendment passed in 1933, and Americans not only started drinking again, but by the 70s, we passed pre-prohibition levels. Not only that, 
but nearly half the states in the country temporarily lowered their legal drinking ages to 18, leading to a decade that was incredibly boozy. Since then, we've continued our complicated relationship with alcohol. We drink, decide to abstain, only to fall off the wagon again somewhere down the road. For the last 20 years or so, we've been on the upswing, and you'll have to wait until a later episode in this series to hear both why that's the case and how drinking today is much different than it used to be. But the failure of the temperance movement does set us up for the second half of this episode. Because even though our relationship with alcohol has changed, it's still worth looking at the price we pay for it. The temperance movement may have failed to eliminate alcohol, but they weren't entirely wrong about its dangers. Drinking, uh, it isn't good for you. So that's one of those statements that seems obvious, and yet for decades, quite the opposite was thought to be true. If you've ever heard that a glass of red wine can be healthy, you're one of the many people who's heard what's known as the French paradox, an idea first proposed in 1991. But recent studies have found that the science behind that idea is not so credible and likely a result of poorly interpreting the data. And the recent health recommendations go way beyond that. Earlier this year, the World Health Organization released a report titled No level of alcohol consumption is safe for our health. None. Zip. Zero. Zilch. Not even the temperance movement was so bold as to suggest that, quote, risks start from the first drop, end quote. That's because alcohol has for decades been leaked to cancer. The same WHO statement says that over two 100 million people in the WHO region are at risk of developing alcohol-attributable cancer. It's a class one carcinogen, just like tobacco, and it has been since 1988. So if you're wondering how bad could a couple of gallons a year be, then the answer is that it might just give you cancer. So does that mean you have to abstain for the rest of your life? No. Should you go around knocking drinks out of people's hands like Dikembe Mutombo? Uh, No, unless you're recording it, in which case, yes, and please send me the footage. But seriously, the point of those facts isn't to turn our listeners into a bunch of finger-wagging buzzkills. It's simply to point out that like many fun activities, there's a price to be paid. The goal is to establish a healthy relationship with our various vices, one that allows us to have a good time without drinking ourselves into an early grave. Because of course, the danger of alcohol doesn't stop with cancer. In 2021, 13,000 384 people died in alcohol-impaired driving accidents. Those deaths are preventable. The fact that it keeps happening speaks to a certain flaw in the human mind, one that crops up in other places too. Nobody 
thinks they're the one who will cause the accident. Everyone thinks that it's all the other idiots who get into crashes when they're drunk. But every single day, more than 30 people die from drunk driving, which means that all too often, people are wrong. There's also the hundreds of billions of dollars in lost economic activity that results from the side effects of too much drinking. You may think that you're a better employee when you have a good buzz, but the CDC would beg to differ. Now, again, none of this is to suggest that you have to abstain. I do think there are certain times and places where a stiff drink is called for. I absolutely believe that under the right circumstances, alcohol can be a wonderful thing. There's a reason why humans for millennia have devoted so much brain power to making increasingly more delicious concoctions. A good drink, well-made and elegantly presented, enjoyed in good company, has often been the glue that makes all sort of social bonds possible. I'm just asking you to pause before you order the next round. As always, I want to encourage you, the audience, to continue the discussion on Facebook and Instagram. Like all our shows here, this podcast is brought to you in part by Eliag Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians and Pointcast News. To listen to our podcast or read our latest articles, you can visit our website at pointcast.news or subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and make sure you join us next time.